All right. Thank you, Pastor Marvin. Appreciate that. We're actually going to be in Genesis chapter 29. So if you want to get a little more specific, um, go to Genesis chapter 29. Uh, and I am going to tell you, um, there's a lot of text we're going to be in this morning. Uh, the story, this part of Jacob's life, uh, I want to be able to tell you really this kind of entire story. Some of it I want to tell you, some of them I'm going to read, uh, some of it I'll summarize. Um, but it is a lot. So it's Genesis 29. We're going into chapter 30. And it's not all going to be, it's not going to be on the screen. So if you want to follow along, open up your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in a chair rack below you. And it's page 23 in your chair rack Bible. And uh, if you want to follow along, we can do that there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for meeting with us around the communion table, around Christ, as we remember what you did for us, Lord. Grateful for that cross, the forgiveness that we receive. Thank you for being able to enter into worship together, um, to worship your name, to meet with your presence in this place, to be able to give in our offering, Lord. We pray that you would uh, receive what's given, <clears throat> use it for your purposes, for your mission. <clears throat> and now, Lord, as we gather around your word, would you speak to us, Lord? Open our hearts. May my words bring forth your word. And Lord, your word is what's important and changes us. So help us to hear it, see it, and receive it this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, what do you do when you walk into a place that you didn't expect to find a mess and you find a mess? Ever had that situation? Specifically this morning, I would ask, what question comes into your mind when you walk into a situation where you didn't expect to find a mess and then you find a mess? Uh, several years back, I was, uh, went out to my car in the morning to go to work and I open up and go in my car and I look around in my car and I realize my car doesn't look like it usually looks in the morning. Something doesn't look right. And as I look around, I notice my glove box is open and everything that was in my glove box is no longer in my glove box. It's all over my car. Everything that was in my center console is all over the car, CDs, pencils, uh, owner's manuals, all that stuff. And uh, what, I didn't expect to find a mess there. And the question that came into my mind in that moment, maybe the question that would come into your mind when you find a mess you didn't expect to see is how did this happen? How did this happen? I didn't do it. I didn't leave my car like this. At first I thought, what did Wendy do to my car? Wendy must have come out in the evening and somehow ransacked the car. Uh, but that didn't make sense. Uh, I quickly fell upon somebody else was in my car between when I left that night and when I got back in it that morning. And it uh, turns out, found out, going through the neighborhood uh, that night uh, were uh, some people who were looking for unlocked cars and were not willing to break into a car, but were more than willing to open a door that was left unlocked and try and find something valuable. And so how did it happen? I left the door unlocked, they went through the car, and the car was a mess. There's times you step into situations that are a mess, a place you didn't expect to see a mess, and you find a mess, and the question is, how does that happen? Maybe you're a parent, you come home, your kids were left alone, and the house is not the way that you left it. Or you walk into their room, maybe. Maybe you have been home, and one day you just walk into their room, and you haven't been in there in a while, and you just look around. And say, how did this happen? How did this get here? But it happens in other places too. Maybe you start a new job. And you move into a new position. And you're all excited about the new position. And you think this is going to be great. New transition. You, you accepted the job. They, you want to be there. They wanted you. You sit down to your first day at work. And there's a binder that's put on your desk full of complaints and problems. And the people that you are over. And you open up and you start flipping through pages. And you start going, how did this happen? When you walk into a place and you find a mess that you didn't necessarily expect to see a mess, one of the questions you ask is, how did this happen? Maybe as you come to the Bible, and maybe as you come to the life of Jacob, you step into a story and it looks like a mess. 
And maybe you don't have much experience with the Bible and you think, well, the Bible's a holy book and, and I'm going to open it up and I'm going to find a lot of stories of moral people that are living great lives of, and I'm going to be able to strive to live a life the way that they live. And then you get into it and you get into something as early, page 23 in your Bible, as the life of Jacob and you see a mess and you say, how does this happen? I want us to consider this morning as we step back into Jacob's story, that question, how does this happen? How does the mess happen in Jacob's life? And by extension, how does sometimes the mess happen in our lives? Because we step into our lives and we find ourselves at times in the midst of a mess. And the question needs to be, how does this happen? How do we get here? What led us to this place? But then as Christians, there's a follow-up question. So two questions I want us to consider this morning. How does the mess happen but secondly, where is God in the midst of the mess? Where do you find God in the midst of the messes that we sometimes find in our lives? So the first question, how does it happen? How does the mess occur? How does the mess in our lives occur? As we get to the answer to that point, let me, let me remind you of a story you have no doubt heard in your past, the story of King Midas, some of you remember the story of King Midas. Maybe you heard it as a child. Maybe you heard it in school as a part of Greek mythology. Midas was this king who was granted one wish by the Greek god Dionysus. And he said he could have any wish he wanted, but he can only have one. And so the wish he made was that anything he touched would turn to gold. And it was granted and it was a valuable gift until it wasn't. He enjoyed turning common sticks into precious metals, gold, even roses into golden flowers. But it all changed when he attempted to eat his food and drink, and it was turned into gold. Uh, from there, the story takes different paths. Uh, some said in an attempt to comfort his daughter from the loss of the sweet-smelling roses that he had turned into gold, she was mourning over that, and Midas tried to comfort her and turned her into gold. Aristotle wrote and said that Midas starved to death because he could not eat. Others completed the myth by saying that Dionysus granted him an out where he had to wash in a river and it was taken away from him. But whichever way it ends, the point of the story was not simply about greed. It showed that whatever we set as our ultimate focus of our life, it has the potential to consume everything else in our life. The place where we set our ultimate affection will consume everything else, even things that are good and necessary for us to live. For Midas, that was food for his body and the daughter that he loved. But the same thing can happen to us. When we set our ultimate affection on something, everything else often takes a back seat. And many times it has consequences we did not anticipate. In fact, let me put it this way, if our ultimate affection is placed anywhere but on God, I believe we're setting ourselves up for disappointment eventually. We might find that everything we touch turns to gold, but like Midas, it leaves us starving for what we really need. So how does the mess happen? Let me submit to you this point first. Ultimate affection set on anything other than God results in a mess eventually. Ultimate affection set on anything other than God results in a mess eventually. That's the point we're going to see as we enter Jacob's story once again. And I tell you that up front before I read the passage, because as I'm telling you the story and reading you the passage, I want it in your mind, I want you to think about where do the people's ultimate affections lie in this story of Jacob's life? There's four people. You're going to find, we're going to, we're going to look at in this passage, Jacob, Laban, Leah, and Rachel. And who are they? So, so Jacob, we've heard of, if you've been with us, he is now on the run because his brother wanted to kill him for stealing his brother's blessing. And so he wanted to, his brother wanted to kill him, so Jacob's a man on the run. So he's running back to his mother's brother's home, his uncle. And his uncle's name is Laban. It's 500 miles away. It's a pretty big journey back then. But he's running back to the, the homeland of his mother's brother. 
to allegedly to find a wife. And so he's on the run. He's going to his uncle's house, Laban. Laban has two unmarried daughters. Their names are Leah and Rachel. And so I'm going to tell you some of the story. I'm going to read some of the story. But as I do, here's the questions I want, I want you to think about. Look for what is most important to each person in the account. Where does their ultimate affection lie? Where does their desire lie? If each of these people were given the opportunity that Midas had, what would they ask for? What would they ask for? And let me take it a step further, and maybe you'd consider this as we're going through this story. What would you ask for? If you were given the opportunity, one wish, you can have it. What would you ask for? So ultimate affections, where do they lie? Let's look at it, Genesis chapter 29. So the first part, verses 1 through 8, that I'm not going to read for you, what happens is Jacob shows up near Haran, where his uncle lives. He talks to some shepherds, and they say, yep, you're in the right place. Laban lives nearby. Yep, he's alive. And here comes his daughter, Rachel. So we'll pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 29. While he was still speaking with them, that is Jacob speaking with the shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son and, that she, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he also loved Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Let's pause here for a second and let's get back to our question. Ultimate affections. What is Jacob's ultimate affection? It's obvious, right? He wants Rachel. 
More than anything, he wants Rachel. Have you ever loved someone this much? Do you see what it says? It says he served seven years, but it seemed like a few days. How many of you, I'm not going to ask, how many of you, I'm just going to assume, all of you, you're, you've been in a real, you're, you loved like that. Wouldn't it be great to be loved like that? Served seven years, seemed like a few days. Jacob's ultimate affection is with Rachel. Now, I'm not going to go into it this morning much, but those of you that have been with us the last few weeks, I mean, you pick on the comeuppance that Jacob's getting here, right? The whole older, younger, you know, he deceived his older brother, and now he has to marry the older sister. He's deceived into it. There's a whole lot of what goes around, comes around in this, but that's not our message this morning. This morning, we're looking up where do these ultimate affections lie that seem to cause the mess here. Jacob's is with Rachel. What about Laban? What about Laban's ultimate affection here? For Laban, it's different. What's his ultimate affection? Laban wants a payday. He no doubt has in mind at this encounter, the encounter he had years earlier when they were looking for a bride for Isaac. And when they were looking for a bride, for Abraham was looking for a bride for Isaac, he went to Laban's household and they wanted Laban's sister, Rebekah, to be Isaac's bride. And what, what Laban found out at that moment was that Abraham is very, very rich. In fact, the scripture said, the Lord has greatly blessed my master. And he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. Abraham had a lot of money. And at that point, Laban also got a payday, even as his sister, his sister went to marry Isaac. It says in Genesis chapter 24, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother, costly ornaments. So somehow Laban got a payday when his sister got married, and now Jacob is coming looking for a wife, and Laban has two unmarried daughters, and he's got shekel signs in his eyes. <laughs> Here comes the unmarried grandson of Abraham. However, once Jacob unpacked his story, two things became obvious. One... He is, in fact, his relative. Two, he's got no money. So Laban's not going to get the payday he wanted, at least not in the way that he wanted. So Jacob works for him a month, and in that month, he finds out he's a pretty sharp guy. This Jacob knows what he's doing. The flocks are flourishing. The books are going well. There's an increase. Okay. And he goes to Jacob, and he says, what should I pay you? He wants to keep him on probably knows where it's going. Jacob says, I'll work seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Seven years was a lot. Common bride price, three, four years at the most. Seven? But he had nothing else to offer. I mean, he had his labor and his top-notch brain, and that's all he had to offer at that moment. And maybe he wanted to make Laban an offer he couldn't refuse. Seven years was certainly more than fair. So Laban agrees, sort of, because what does he say? Does he say yes? Not quite. He says, that's eh, better for you, her to marry you than someone else. Which is kind of a coy phrase without quite saying yes to him. Because he's not going to give him Rachel right away. He's going to parlay Rachel into Leah and parlay that into another seven years of labor. Laban wants money. He wants a payday. That's where his ultimate affection lies. Well, what about Leah and Rachel? I mean, they've got something to say in here. What's going on with them? Where does their affection lie? Well, let's pick it up in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. 
She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you fruit of the womb? Here we see clearly, let's stop there. Let's look at the affections of Leah and Rachel. What's the affection of Leah? Love, but specifically what? With, from who? She wants her love from her husband, right? Did you catch the name of her th- first three kids? They're all about gaining Jacob's affection. I want my husband. I want him to love me. He'll see me. He'll hear me. He'll cling to me. I have borne him sons. What else could he possibly? Now he will love me. What's Rachel's? consuming affection, children. She already had the love of her her husband. She had a husband that loved her enough to work 14 years to have her as a wife. She has the affection of her husband. She is the object of her husband's affection. What she doesn't have is children. Not only that, but her sister with the quote-unquote weak eyes that nobody wants, nobody gives a second glance to. She's what my college Hebrew professor termed a fertile myrtle. It seemed as if she just had to think about it and she was pregnant with a son. And Rachel sees that and envies and is jealous. In fact, she says this, give me children or I will die. She says to Jacob, how our ultimate affections are causing more and more of a mess because now she has put Jacob in a no-win situation. Give me what I want in this world more than anything or you're going to lose what you want in this world more than anything. Give me my ultimate affection or you're going to lose yours. Happens today still too, these things in relationships. It's not unlike when it goes on today when a boyfriend or a girlfriend says, sleep with me or I'll leave you or do this or stay with me or I'll take my life. This idea that give me what I want or you'll lose what you want. This is what happens. This is the situation Jacob has put in. Did you notice Jacob's reaction? It says, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. How could that happen? He loved her so much. He was willing not only to work seven years, but to accept himself being deceived and swindled into working another seven years. He was humiliated, extorted, overcharged, and cheated all for Rachel. And he did it willingly. But now it says his anger is kindled against her. The only thing that could cause Jacob to be angry Angry with Rachel is the possibility of losing Rachel, the object of his ultimate affection. The desires of these two sister wives cause problems, and they cause even more problems. So since Rachel can't have children, she comes up with an idea. I can't have children, but I've got a servant woman, Bilhah. And in our culture and in our world, one thing you can do is you can take your servant and if she has children with your husband, then you, those children can be considered your children. And so she takes her servant Bilhah, gives, says, tells her husband to sleep with Bilhah and have children through her and Jacob does and he has, she has two children. But Leah, not wanting to be outdone, says, well, I have a servant too. And so she takes her servant Zilpah, 
because she wants her husband's affection, gives Zilpah to Jacob, and there's two more sons that come about. So if you're keeping track at home, that's four for Leah, two for Bilhah, two for Zilpah, and zero for Rachel at this point. Then things get really crazy. Then things get really messy. Genesis chapter 30, let's pick it up in verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, you remember him, he's the oldest son of Leah, right? Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Let's pause there for a second. Why? Here's why. Because it was believed that mandrakes were a fertility enhancer and they were very rare and you couldn't find them very easily. So if there is for Rachel something that might cause her to get her ultimate affection, which is kids in her grasp, she's gonna do whatever she can to get it. So she says, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she, Leah, said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Apparently, Rachel was in charge of where Jacob spent his evenings. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son, Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And you thought your family had issues. <laughs> what a mess. How? How did it get this way? You walk into a place where maybe you don't expect to find a mess, and you find a mess, and you say, how does it get this way? I think what we see in the story is that when our ultimate affection is on something, we will do anything to get it. We set our heart to sacrifice almost anything else in our life, and we don't care about the pain that we're causing and the mess that we're leaving in our wake. We see it clearly in this account. Laban takes no care for the lost relationship with Jacob, for what he's doing with his relationship with his sister, Rebecca, or more importantly, to his own daughters, who he's treating as a commodity for financial gain. Jacob would marry another wife so he could have Rachel. I mean, he could have stopped at Leah. He could have said, hey, those are the breaks. What goes around comes around. I guess I got what I deserved. I got Leah. But he said, no, I'm getting Rachel. Leah and Rachel in their birth wars continue to create a mess because their ultimate desire is on something of this world. Let's pause there from the story and just step out for a moment and ask ourselves, we go back to that question, where is your ultimate desire? I think, if anything, this story causes us to ask, is there someplace our ultimate desire lies other than God himself? And this is not an easy question to answer, even as we explore our own hearts. Even for people who sit in a church on a Sunday morning and sing praises to God and, 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 and everything we just did, there are, it's difficult at times to know our own hearts. But we have to take a pause and take a collection of our own hearts and say, is there something that is my ultimate prize that is other than God? Let me show you how hard that is to see sometimes. Perhaps what you really desire is 
praise from other people or success in other people's eyes. And you know what that looks like when you're outside the church and you know how to get it, but then you come inside the church and, and, you, and you come inside the church and you come to Jesus, but you don't leave behind your ultimate affection. And so you want people's praise and even as you walk into a church setting. And you realize in church, well, the way, to, the way to really be seen as a success in church is to sacrifice. So I show up first and you leave late. You give more than anyone else and you sacrifice more than anyone else. And suddenly there's pats on the back and wow, that's great. And what a great disciple and what a great Christian. And every one of them feeding an ultimate desire in your life that is something other than God. It can be difficult to know our own hearts at times. We can be tricked into pursuing something that's good but not God. It could be something as good as marriage and children. You just want to be a mom. You just want to be a dad. And that's a good thing. And the Bible calls that a good thing. And it's a good blessing. And yet to be pursued at all costs even beyond God, will eventually leave you disappointed and leave you looking for more. It's why Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower, you're actually going to have to hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. And we read those words and we say, that can't be true. But what Jesus is saying is, in comparison to how you love me, every other relationship, it's almost going to look like you hate them. Because I've got to be first. That ultimate affection has to be set on God. So we step into this mess. And we say, how can God be at work in this mess? How can God work in the midst of this? I think one of the things we first have to realize is this. The messiness of our lives is the evidence of our need for God. You might look at this and you say, how can God possibly start out his nation and his family like this? Because if you're pretty sharp and maybe you've read through the Bible or the Old Testament a bit, those names I said, you've heard them before, haven't you? Perhaps you heard the names of Reuben and Naphtali and Dan. And you say, I know those words. You do, because those are the names of what will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel is, is, is God's chosen nation to deliver his message and hope for the world through. But as it starts, it starts with Jacob's 12 sons. And those 12 sons come through a polygamous marriage, come through servants being forced into a sexual relationship with Jacob, come through a barter of food for, for sex in a relationship. And you say, how could God possibly start his people and his nation in this way? I found a mess where I didn't expect to find one. Your, don't mistake the evidence for our need for God for an obstacle to God's blessing. Your messy life and the messy lives in this story is not a disqualification from the grace of God. It is actually the evidence of the need for it. Don't mistake the evidence of our need for God for an obstacle to the grace of God. The very thing we might think is the reason God can't work in a person's life is the very reason we need God to work in our life. Far from surprising the Lord, the actions of these four people provide the very incontrovertible evidence of humanity's need for God to intervene. This is a clear sign of why we need the blessing of God. Jacob and his sister wives, Laban and his swindling and mistreatment of his daughters, Rachel and Leah and their birth wars, all of it points to the fact that they all need God. And it's the same in your life and my life. That you might look at your life and you might think, well, this certainly disqualifies me from God actually ever working on my behalf. Or maybe 
You look at someone else and you think, God certainly can't work in their life. I mean, look at the mess that their life is. I mean, they're so far from God, God can't reach them. Don't mistake the very evidence of our need for God for an obstacle to God's grace. The sin in our lives, the mess of the world around us is like a signal flag going up to God saying, we need you. We need you. We need your blessing. We need you to work on our behalf. And this mess that's going on in this, the, the, the polygamous relationship, maybe you committed this, you say, well, God must be sanctioning it. It's the exact opposite. Every time you see polygamy in the Bible and as you read through the book of Genesis, it always ends up a mess and terrible. It is a signal flag going up saying, if you go this route, it's not going to end up well. So what we sometimes see is God sanctioning something is just the opposite. It's God saying, no, this isn't the way to go. Your messy life is not a disqualification from the grace of God. It is evidence of your need for it. So where is God? Where is God in the midst of this mess? The truth is you've got to look hard in this passage. You can read this passage and you say, is there anything redemptive about it? In fact, you read through the beginning of chapter 29 and you don't see the name of God mentioned at all. Laban never checks with God about whether he should enter this relationship with Jacob. Jacob never takes time to pray about whether he should marry Leah or Rachel. God's not mentioned anywhere in the beginning of chapter 29 until we don't see the name of God until you get to verse 31. When it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Where is God in this passage? God is with the overlooked, the pushed aside, the one nobody else wants. Isaiah 57, 15 says that God dwells in two places. He dwells in high and holy places. We would expect that. But then it says, and he dwells with the lowly and contrite. And we see this again and again throughout the Bible. We certainly see it in the book of Genesis. Why does he always choose the younger? Why does he always choose the one who's pushed aside? Because God is showing he, he's with the one who's pushed aside. He's with the lowly. It says, the Lord saw Leah. What do we know about Leah at this point? We know she was older than Rachel. She was not married. We're told that she had weak eyes. Hard to know what that meant, actually. A lot of different interpretations and commentaries about what that means. But it at least meant she was undesirable. No one wanted Leah. Not only that, but because she was older, she was an obstacle to her father marrying off her younger sister for a good bride price because the older one had to be married first. Unless, of course, you could get someone to come along who could be swindled into marrying Leah first, but who could be that dumb? We're told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And in fact, it says Leah was hated. In comparison to how Jacob felt about Rachel, Leah was hated. Wasn't loved at all. Society looked the other way. Nobody wanted to marry her. Her father saw her as a problem that needed to be solved, pushed her aside, overlooked her, used her, forced her. Maybe she willingly, if this was the only way she could get a husband, went along. We don't know for sure. But even so, to know that the only way you were going to get married is if you tricked someone into it. Leah was weak and overlooked. That's what we know about Leah. But here's what we also know about Leah. God saw Leah. God saw her. 
Her eyes may have been weak, but God's eyes were on her. Everyone else may have pushed her aside, but God saw her. And because of that, God works through her in an incredible way. She had more sons than anyone else for Jacob. She had six sons. Half the tribes came from Leah. But even more significant than that, did you notice the name of her fourth son? What was the name of her fourth son? Judah. Even if you have no understanding of the Bible, you're thinking, that sounds familiar to me. Because just this morning, you came in and sang a song about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah, when Leah had Judah, she had nothing to say about her, my husband will love me. Trying to get her husband's affection. When Judah was born, she said, because I will praise God. Judah's name means praise. And Judah will be talked about again. When in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is giving out all his blessings to all of his sons, he turns to Judah. And he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And then later in Matthew chapter 1, it starts out this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And it goes on and on and on and on until it comes down to Jesus. And then in Revelation chapter 5, as John sees a vision of Jesus coming again, if John sees a vision of the end of what we know as time and Jesus returning, he writes these words, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and the seven seals. The son of Judah would be Jesus. Jesus would be the son of Judah. And Judah is the son of Leah. The overlooked, the pushed aside, the no one wanted, the never good enough, the in the way, the one that no one saw. And yet God said, it says God saw Leah. I was reminded today by, I was talking about this message to Jay Titus just before service, and he reminded me of something I had not read in preparation to this message and forgotten, that Leah was actually buried in the same tomb as Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah, and it says, Jacob says, and I buried Leah there. Rachel, unfortunately, dying during childbirth, was buried on the side of a road on their journey. But Leah was in the same tomb as Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. And there was Leah, the one with weak eyes, pushed aside. Nobody saw. Nobody wanted. But God overwhelms the overlooked. That this is what God, this is who God is. God dwells with those who are humble and contrite and overlooked, and God sees that. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back as we close. Um, God overwhelms the overlooked. We, in, earlier in the service, took time to celebrate communion. There is no better picture that God sees you than when we celebrate communion together. There is no better picture of the fact that God has not ignored you, that God sees you, that even though others might be pushed aside, that others might have pushed you aside, that no, someone in this world may not notice you, that you might feel tossed aside, overlooked, forgotten in this world. There is no better picture of the fact that God sees you 
than when we take communion and remember what Jesus did for you. That God set his affection on you and on me that we might be forgiven. Setting your ultimate affections on things of this world will bring disappointment, but setting them on God will lead you to what you truly seek. See, your wish, if it was Midas, might have been money, positions, possessions. Perhaps it was to be married. Maybe it's to have children. Those are things you might want, but God came to give you what you need because otherwise, like Midas, you might find yourself surrounded by what you want and lacking what you really need. God came to give you what you truly need and seek. Let me close with this story. It's a powerful truth for us to embrace. It came home to me in August of 2009. That was the last time I heard a sermon on Leah preached. And I remember it so vividly because Wendy and I were in Orlando, Florida at a conference. And it was a conference, a meeting of pastors and ministers, and there were tens of thousands of people there. And I remember it because we didn't really want to go. It was at a time in our life, our daughter had just turned one, our son was three. Um, things weren't going well at Wendy's work job. Things were difficult at home. Things were challenges with young and new moms. And some of you have gone through some challenges like that when you've had new babies and young babies. And we, I remember the night before we were sitting on the floor in our daughter's room and we both just said, we don't want to go. Let's just not go. Let's just call off the trip. Let's just forget. It's just not worth it. But we were taking Isaac to Disney World one day and we were gonna, and we, and we said, no, we, we've made these plans and, and we'll just trust God and go. And in the midst of that trip, so we went down and we went down, kind of miserable, but we went down and we went to some of the meetings. And, and then one night, Dr. George Wood got up to speak a message and he spoke a message about Leah. And I remember because Wendy... If you talk to her even today, she'll tell you that's one of the messages that God's used to impact her the most. Because in that moment, he said, God sees you. God sees you when no one else sees you. And you may be overlooked by everyone else. And you might think no one sees your pain, but God sees you. And so she responded and went down to the altar. And in that Arena. There were literally tens of thousands of people and there were hundreds of pastors gathered around the front of the altar available to pray with people and just this mash of people in what were somewhat lines, but you just kind of stood behind people and moved forward and waited your turn for someone to pray for you. And Wendy got at the back of that, not knowing where she was in line, uh, who she was, but in, once she got to the front of the line, The pastor looked into her eyes and said, Wendy? And she looked at him, and I think his name was Mike. I, was, I don't even remember. She knows. Because it turns out it was a pastor from New Mexico in a church that she grew up in that knew her and that she knew him. And out of the hundreds of pastors that were up the front, she didn't know any of the others. She didn't know what line she was getting into. And in that moment, it was God saying, I see you. I see you. No one else might see you, but I see you. And then it was, even beyond that, later on we were on our way home at the end of this trip, and it was a pretty good trip, but still, uh, kids got sick at the end of it. Wendy got sick, we were in the airport, and we were carrying our kids and our bags and everything else. And we, I, we didn't know how we were going to get to the airplane, honestly. I was like, I don't know. I'll carry this stuff and come back for you, and we'll hope we make it. And, and then right in the parking lot, one of my friends who happened to be a pastor in one of the couple towns over in Massachusetts said, hey, you know, how, how you guys doing? And he picked up and carried our bags and helped carry our kids, carried us to the gate. And we got on that plane, and we heard God saying, I see you. I see you. 
I don't know who's here this morning that you've been overlooked and pushed aside. But I just believe God wants you to know this morning he sees you. He sees where you're at. And he loves you. And he sent his son that you might have forgiveness of your sins, that you might have no, be in relationship with him. He did what no one else could do, and he loved you in a way no one else could love you. God sees you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come this morning to you, I thank you for your word. And Lord, if this was our family history, if this was our book, we would hide it in the back somewhere. We wouldn't want anyone to hear about it and see it. And yet you put your family and the people you work through right out there. And uh, Lord, we see it and what we understand this morning is this is evidence of how much we need you. And there's so many of us in this room that we don't need, we don't need anyone else to provide the evidence. We got plenty of evidence in our life, the mess of our families and our lives that we need you, God. And I thank you, God, that you see us in there. And I pray for the man or I pray for the woman who's in this room this morning who walked in here and maybe thought they would walk in and walk out and no one would see them and that's the way they wanted it. And yet you see them, God. You see them. Lord, I pray, God, that we would know what it means to set our affection on the God who sees us, the God who knows us, the God who loves us. Lord, teach us. Lord, show us what that means. Lord, I believe some walked in this room this morning and the idea of God seeing them is scary. The idea that God knows and sees us is frightening. Lord, God saw that you saw Leah. In all her brokenness, she wasn't perfect. She had her affection someplace else, and yet you are the God who had compassion on her. Lord, I pray for that person in this room who thinks that God is, you're mad at them, you're upset with them, you'll never forgive them, that God, I pray that today they would know that you are a God who sees and has compassion on them, loves us. And that because of that, that we can set our ultimate affection on you, that we can trust you with our lives. I pray that each and every one of us would do that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this song of worship as we close today?